This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. Today joining me is Eamon Kerens and Superchai Arafan, who are the co-PIs of Spearnet, uh, a new group who are very interested in exoplanets and are going to be doing uh, multiple observations of these. And if we take it away and uh, you both want to tell me a bit about the collaboration? Sure, yeah, I know. So Spearnet is the Spectroscopy and Photometry of Exoplanetary Atmospheres Research Network. Bit of a mouthful, so Spearnet uh, sounds better. And basically it's spawned out of a collaboration between myself and Superchai, which goes back a few years now, when Superchai used to be here at Manchester with me. And we are, we're trying to prepare for a new era in exoplanet research. So just a few months ago, NASA launched TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Maybe we can get on a bit in a moment and talk about what, what, what that involves. But it's, it's, it's going to detect maybe even up to 20,000 extrasolar planets using the transit method, where a planet passes in front of a star and you see a slight dimming of that star as the, as the planet blocks it. Mm-hmm. So 20,000 is incredible. We're used to Kepler giving us a, a huge catch, but actually Kepler's found about 3,000 confirmed planets. So, okay. um, so, so 20,000 is quite 20, a, bit, a big, big improvement. <laughs> so we're going to go from a situation where, uh, and it's even it's, it's even better than that, actually, because the, the planets that Kepler gave us, many of them are just too far away mm-hmm. for us to follow up from the ground. Whereas TESS is optimised towards searching for planets near Earth, uh, right, okay. relatively nearby planets around bright stars. So, so many of these 20,000 or whatever the final number is, we're going to be able to follow up from the ground if we've got enough telescopes. Right. That's where... It's like the sticking where, point. <laughs> so so, uh, so we, 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 we've... Uh, uh, first of all, we've broached the question... How do we how do we decide which of these planets to follow up? You know, what's what's our ranking order? Mm-hmm. And and then the next question is, how do we assemble together a, a, a network of telescopes and optimally farm out exoplanets to be observed with these telescopes? And the idea is, we're not just observing the exoplanets because obviously they've already been found. We're trying to detect atmospheres around these exoplanets using. Right. A technique called transmission spectroscopy. Superchai, I don't know whether you want to chip in here and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can carry on. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. great. Right. So, uh, so transmission spectroscopy. So we've got a situation where a planet is passing in front of a background star, and it has an atmosphere. So the background star, some of the light from that background star will skim the planet, pass through the atmosphere, and and out the other side. So mm-hmm. we know here on Earth we know that our atmosphere doesn't allow all light to pass through just transparently. In particular, we have a blue sky. Why do we have a blue sky? It's because of a process called Rayleigh scattering. So that's where the the sun's light is scattered in our atmosphere. So our atmosphere is quite opaque to blue light. It traps, it scatters the blue light. Mm -hmm. That's why the sky is blue. Whichever direction the sky you're looking, the blue light is coming from the sun, wherever the sun is. So... The red light, on the other hand, is scattered much less, so that passes through without problem. So if you, if you see the Earth transiting in front of the Sun, it actually looks a little bit bigger in blue light than in red light, because in, in blue light you've got the, 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 the surface of the Earth and the mm-hmm. atmosphere like all blocking the light. Sort of, or shell of atmosphere exactly. around it. Exactly, so yeah. it's a bigger target, it's a bigger disk. So basically, if we, if we study exoplanet transits at a number of different wavelengths, uh, we can actually 
see the signature of the atmosphere blocking the light at some wavelengths, allowing the light through at other wavelengths, and actually doing that over a large number of wavelengths, you literally build a spectrum of the planet's atmosphere. And that's really, really exciting because this technique has been used to identify molecules in the atmospheres of planets like water, like methane, ammonia, things like that. So now that, that kind of work tends to be done with, with at the moment, with large telescopes, with eight metre class telescopes. We're, we're starting from a more humble position mm -hmm. of saying, OK, there's only a few very large telescopes in the world. TESS is going to give us possibly up to 20,000 planets. The smaller telescopes have a role to play here. There are many more of them. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to get large amounts of time on. And together, if they're used enough, you, you, you can effectively, over the time, get the same kind of science content much more effort, but get the same kind of science content ultimately as a short amount of time on a larger telescope. So that's the whole SpearNet paradigm. We're using a large network, and a network actually, many of the telescopes in the network are, are owned and operated by NARIT, which is uh, the major center for astrophysics in, in Thailand. So, mm -hmm. Super, I don't know whether you want to say something about NARIT and the telescope network. Okay, um, NARIT is just uh, new, it's still, I think, most of the uh, astronomers don't know about NARIT because we just, it's been just nine years. Mm -hmm. It's really new, but it's like the government in Thailand that we want to build a, a big institute in astronomy. And now we just died here, but we have around, I think it should be around 10 telescopes around the world. Okay. Most of them are still quite, when it's just a small telescope, it's the, the cost is not really expensive. Mm. But we have a network of small telescopes like Super High students. We have one in Chile, one in USA, one in China, mm -hmm. one in Australia, and we have around four or five in Thailand. Okay. And in, it includes uh, our flagship of NARIT, is a uh, 2.4 meter. Now we have around 10 telescopes. And you know that the astronomer in Thailand, we have just less than 10 astronomers in Thailand. We have a lot of telescope time. Yes. How mm -hmm. we have to use the this telescope and the spinet is a good man because we we have test target that is really bright for the bright enough for field point seven telescope. Mm -hmm. And that means we have the, a lot of target to observe almost every day. That means the telescope can be operated every day. But now I think before we start the spinet, some some night is no no object, no one interest in any object. Right. That, so there's a lot of access to the yeah, telescopes yeah. then, so that's really good in terms of trying to get this off the ground. Absolutely, and TESS is an all-sky survey, so that's something right, else okay. that's very different from Kepler. Kepler yeah. searched quite a lot, well, it sounds like quite a large area, 100 square degrees of, of sky, but mm -hmm. so that's, there are 40,000 square degrees of yeah, the so whole sky, so it's a relatively perspective. <laughs> yes. So TESS has got itself into a, an orbit that will allow it to, to scan over time the entire sky so actually having access to a large number of distributed telescopes mm -hmm. means that we can observe many of these yeah, targets. So you can follow up in several different patches. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. yeah that's brilliant. So but it, a lot of the effort is working out how do we optimize this and your Jodcast audience may be very familiar with uh, Jake Morgan and Jake, Jake for his sins <laughs> has got the task of actually uh, developing the the know-how for okay. how we how we optimally select these. Yeah. these you're whittling down 20,000 or so planets to try and make it viable that's to do right, with yeah. the, the right. 
was it just 10, 10 telescopes at the moment? Or was that... uh, there's uh, 10 telescopes uh, that, which, uh, which NARIT operates. Mm-hmm. We're obviously you know, applying for time and, and getting time on, on other telescopes. Yeah. I mean, in principle, the, the, the algorithm we use to select can be expanded and scaled up mm-hmm. to however many telescopes. Because you, you and just small. rank you know, whatever based on how many telescopes you've got at the time, I guess. So, so we do it per telescope. Um, so the, the, the okay. ranking list is done per telescope and even per which filter, which wavelength you're observing. Right, okay. So it is optimised both to the choice of telescope and to the choice of filter. And it can, it can allow us to, for instance, take a, a, an exoplanet target and decide which of the telescopes and which filter on a telescope would be the best selected. Oh, that's very cool. But then that follows through onto the last part, which is that once we get this data, we need to model it to try and effectively look at um, what the data is telling us about the spectrum of the atmosphere so uh, another um, job caster, Josh Hayes, I'm tasking him with that job to develop a, a code that will interpret the data that we're getting in and to provide us with an update on, on what we believe the atmosphere looks like. Now, in early days of gathering data, he may well come back to me and say, well, my models tell me there's a whole bunch of stuff that could fit this data. Mm-hmm. So in that case... We're fairly. We're in a regime where we're quite ignorant, so we will right. then go back and queue up more observations at other wavelengths to try okay. and be less ignorant. So we, we, the whole philosophy of SpearNet is trying to close that loop of ignorance mm-hmm. and to farm out the data as efficiently as we can to the, the assets that we have at our disposal. That makes that makes perfect sense. How many frequencies have you sort of got access to? What are the frequencies you're looking at? Right, so, so. Uh, so we're dealing primarily at the moment in, in the optical regime. Okay. So, and because we're using small telescopes at the moment, we're accessing so-called hot Jupiters. So one of the big surprises in the field of exoplanets was that some of the early systems that were found were very unlike our own solar system. And in fact, many, many of the example systems have Jupiter-sized planets mm-hmm. in an orbit that might be 10 times smaller than that of Mercury or 10 times, oh, wow. yeah, okay. 10 times closer <laughs> to the host star than that of Mercury. So the, the, these are so-called hot Jupiters. They're very close to their star, so they've mm-hmm. been bombarded by large amounts of radiation. They may have at the temperatures at the top of their atmosphere of order a 1,000 degrees Celsius. So, so that like makes that. them easier to see then as that well. That makes them easier to see, but it also, mean, it also means that... The, the type of atmospheres we're looking for in the optical, we may we may see the evidence of the atmosphere in terms of its clouds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might see hazes. Uh, in some cases, we might find the atmospheres are, are quite transparent. And the interesting thing is that some of these hot Jupiters, they exhibit all of these features. Some, right, okay. some are cloudy, some are hazy, some are relatively transparent. And that's that in itself is quite a, quite an enigma. You know, mm-hmm. why is it that these similar kinds of objects in principle have quite such different, different observable atmospheres? atmospheres. Mm. So, so that's kind of unlocking a, a little bit more about the composition of planets, perhaps how they form, mm-hmm. etc. So that, that's so we're doing that in the optical. But a lot of interest in, in exoplanet atmosphere studies is also in the infrared where okay. uh, molecules like water and methane, etc., uh, have a lot more observable traces there. So there's no reason why, in the few, I mean, there are fewer infrared detectors than there are optical detectors. So at mm-hmm. the moment we're using optical, but in the future, yeah, we hope to use infrared as well. Okay. What is it that these sort of, like, obviously you're like looking at for certain atmospheres and there's going to be a comparison code to try and work out exactly what makes up these atmospheres. Mm-hmm. What can that then, what, what could you possibly glean from that about the host planet? Like, can it give you anything in terms of 
oh, this could be a life holding planet. Like, I realize right, this is kind so of buzzword yeah, sort of looking, thing. But. Looking, I mean, we're starting, as I said, we're starting from humble beginnings. So we're, we're focusing more on, on hot Jupiters where we're, we're not expecting to see evidence of life signatures. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so we're looking at things like, uh, is the atmosphere cloudy, hazy, or is it relatively clear? Things like that. Mm-hmm. But th- there's no reason why this technique, transmission spectroscopy, can't be used, well, it has been used to look for evidence of water in planets. Okay. Uh, and in the future, it could look for evidence of biomarkers. So things like combinations of oxygen and methane, which here on Earth, their, their relative abundance is such only because of biological activity. Right, so they're okay. seen as bellwethers of the existence of biological activity. So, so as this is probably work that would need to be done on larger telescopes mm. than we're currently using. But into the future, as you look at smaller and smaller planets, you could look for those mm. kind of biomarker signatures. Further afield, you know, we know that our industrial activity leaves its own fingerprint in the atmosphere of, of our Earth. Yes. Uh, if we, you know, if further in the decades to come, as this te- as this technique gets. Uh, uh, more and more sophisticated, more and more sensitive. We could look for similar industrial fingerprints okay. in the atmospheres of so other like planets. alien space rubbish sort uh, of absolutely. work. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, alien pollutants. Yes, so, yeah. exactly. Uh, so, but that's you know that that would be obviously quite a remarkable uh, mm. uh, finding. So it really does have. It's a, the excitement in this is is both from the sort of pure science end of understanding mm. planets, understanding their composition and perhaps the, the clues from that yes, about how yeah. they form, through to, yes, the hunt for aliens in the, in the, in the far future, admittedly. Mm. And of course, like, even though we've obviously got the planets in our solar system, like that, it's really difficult to know how planets formed. It's like, so, from what I've heard, there's so many different theories of, on this. And yeah, like, so... So anything to help narrow that down is uh, is certainly worthwhile. Absolutely, like. our, our solar system was until the, you know twenty years ago the only data point on the architecture of solar mm-hmm. systems, and we're now finding the planets we found so far. As although we've found thousands of them, their architecture, the architecture of the systems, still looks generally very unlike that of our own solar system. Now that is probably simply a result of the fact that our techniques are not yet sensitive very sensitive to further out planets mm-hmm. so we tend to find the ones that are nearer in but it may also it, it could turn out who knows that our, our solar system has a s- somewhat unusual architecture in some respects so there are planet formation theories which kind of explain the arrangement of planets in our solar system uh, do they work for planets in other solar systems do planets after they form or during their formation, move about a bit uh, because of uh, you know f- uh, migration effectively mm-hmm. affects um, um, uh, that. W- that would that would seem to it, it, it's actually very difficult to try and explain why there are Jupiters very very close to their host star. Yes. So many astronomers yeah. think that during the formation of planetary systems they migrate. So all the oh, data, so whether they've moved in closer. Yeah. So basically, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the star and the planetary system begins its life as a as a diffuse cloud of gas collapses. And any slight rotation in that cloud, which it might have got from the gravitational effects of other nearby clouds, so one might be rotating clockwise and the other responds to anti-clockwise rotation. So as it collapses, if it has a small rotation, the collapse, like a figure skater pulling their arms in, will make it spin faster, make it rotate faster. That then will form the disk, the the, the centre of the gas will collapse to form a star. The outer parts of the gas will, will, will form a disk around that star, And that's where the planets would form. Now, the planets themselves, as they form, the gas will tug on them. 
And the idea is that that tug could tend to drive them in a sort of spiraling inward motion. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that might ultimately uh, mean that they end up being consumed by their star, or that they might end up in a in a, a very small orbit. So there, there are people. We we don't we're not doing the work here for Spearnet, mm -hmm. but there are yes. people who work on planet formation theories and do very detailed simulations of that effect. But so that's something we obviously hope. Are to there any of these theories that could be complemented by a sort of spectroscopic signature? That, um, that I, well, so I think I think that the the statistics we get from the number of, of planets from uh, missions like TESS and mm -hmm. from Kepler, and there are also ground based surveys doing this NGTS, which is a UK led survey. Yeah. So that they will provide you know uh, uh, many a lot of good statistics on on uh, planets close to their host star. There's yes, other yeah. techniques like direct imaging. And uh, gravitational lensing, which uh, which you know, uh, work on other principles, which are, are good at detecting planets further out. So assembling those statistics together is probably the best way. Of so it's building up as much as you can from all of the different resources, exactly. and then trying to do one big sort of collaborative yes. effort. Yeah, to, yeah uh, exactly. We're all cogs in a wheel. Yes, so. <laughs> very good. That's how science should be. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned so that you, that institute's been around for nine years or so. So. How long do you expect it to be before you're doing observations? When's tests? I, think, I believe it's already up now. It's observing. Well, I think they are. They're, they're still undergoing testing mm -hmm. uh, with the with the mission. I think it's now in its uh, final science orbit. There was, uh, okay. you know, they had to. It's in a very unusual orbit, so it required a slingshot trajectory around yeah. the moon, etc., to get into its final state. So I suspect now they're, they're testing all the instruments out and, okay. and looking at the data, and, but they, they'll, they are scheduled to start reasonably soon, I think. Okay. Is that a very long-term mission? In, is it a couple uh, of years? It's or? a few years, yeah, I think. It's it's two, yeah. two years. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, so you should get quite a bit of uh, data out of that then. You should, so, yeah. 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 And the good thing is you don't have to be a member of TESS. They're, they're going to release the data I think the to first the science community. That analysis should be the end of this year. Okay, so that's... Uh... As I know, it, it starts from the Southern Hemisphere first, and it will go to Northern Hemisphere. I think, yeah, it's quite a good time to study the atmosphere mm. also, because the, this area, this field just start just uh, less than the K. I mm. think it's the, the first one that we studied, uh, the GJ three four three. They will be doing my PhD. This the first one that start of the spinet. Okay. At that time, yeah. I think we few paper about the transmission spectroscopy. That is just four years ago, and it's just uh, I think it's very so new. It's quite in its infancy at the moment. Then. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Uh, so we're really moving from a phase of merely detecting planets to to characterizing them. So that's brilliant. So that's a really exciting uh, next generation thing to be a part of. Then I bet. absolutely, and yeah. and. Uh, there's, there's, there's also space missions that are, uh, I'm thinking of one in particular, the European Space Agency has just given a green light to a mission called Ariel. Okay. And that is going to be a characterization mission, which will be, you know, so it's a space mission, but it will be using techniques akin to transmission spectroscopy to, to actually characterize exoplanets. So it's going to be a very big frontier over the coming decade or so. Oh, that's a really exciting time and it's, it must be really cool to be part of it. So thank you, Eamon and Superchai, for that. That sounds like a really exciting place to be uh, beginning in terms of these characterizations of these planets. So uh, I wish you good luck with that work. Thanks and I much. look forward to seeing some papers out soon, I hope. Cheers, Al. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you both.